You know, as we've been in, uh, as well as I was coming up on stage here, I was thinking, uh, wow, are we, are, we starting, are we starting the building project already? You know, are we already, we have a project ongoing that, that the plan is to replace the education building. We, we haven't even started the, that capital campaign yet, but um, by God's grace and how God abundantly provides, we're almost halfway to meeting the first phase, phase one of that plan. And I thought, maybe we're going, but uh, no, not quite yet. This is VBC. We're building in another direction uh, for the next generation. But that's what it's about, building for the next generation. But to do that kind of a thing, to, to give, to give um, extravagantly, as has already been done for that building that is not yet, that's not easy to do, is it? It's not easy to sacrifice and to do without something for the sake of something that will be we're promised, but we have not yet seen. And yet, everything about the Christian life functions like that. Things in, the, in everyday life, in the secular world, also function like that. We do things, we take actions, we sacrifice, we do without for a future that we haven't yet seen. Retirement planning works like that, doesn't it? You're urged to eat out less today so that you will have some money in the future that you can eat when you're retired, okay? You will still be able to buy food. That's, that's the point. To do without, maybe to, to have a smaller house and, and, and a smaller mortgage payment now so you can use that money to save for retirement so that in your retirement you have a home to live in. We, we give up something now for the sake of a future that is set before us, even if we don't see it yet. Now, some of you that are in your 20s, that whole thing about, about setting money aside now for retirement, like retirement, what's that, right? You don't see it. It's not really in front of you yet. You get a little older, you realize, oh, no, that's coming soon. If I want to eat then, I better make some changes. But one of the things that's necessary then in retirement planning, one of the things that's necessary in building to, to build without debt, without an ongoing uh, bondage that limits it takes setting aside now, sacrificing now, giving up something now so that I can do for the next generation, something that we don't yet see. When we walk with the Lord, if we're going to know him and follow him, and our series in Mark has been to know and follow Jesus, to know him better that we might follow him more fully, and to do that, we need to know uh, what his future is, because to sacrifice, to make choices differently than the voices around us scream is going to take a good reason. And Jesus has this called them to sacrifice. Jesus, at the end of chapter 8, has just told them, this is the essence of the Christian life. If you want to follow me into my kingdom, this is what it looks like. If anyone would be my disciple, he says, let him or her, deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's a sacrificial following. It's a hardship. It's an enduring hardship for the sake of others. It's a giving up myself, even as Jesus gave himself for us. Yet that's hard to do when you don't see it yet. We don't yet see his kingdom. And so in Mark chapter 9... He gives his disciples and us through them a little glimpse. He, 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 he calls them to climb another mountain, to climb a better mountain. He takes them up this mountain that is called the Mount of Transfiguration. And to, to set the scene for that, this is likely, uh, uh, well, 
we had a picture. Did we see the picture yet? I don't know if we saw the picture. This is likely the mountain that we're talking about. And so you can see it's a bit of a climb. That is Mount Hermon. It's the only place in Israel where you can go skiing. So if you go in wintertime, put that on your, on your itinerary. But that mountain is in the very north of Israel. In fact, on one side of the mountain, you can ski down into Syria instead. Don't make that mistake. But on the map, okay, there's the Sea of Galilee, and a lot of Jesus' ministry is north of Galilee there. And yet, in chapter 8, he took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. And they're there in Caesarea Philippi, the first red circle. They go from there, he takes three of them up to this very high mountain, probably Mount Hermon, in that general region. And then all of them travel back, and by the end of the chapter, we're going to be back down in Capernaum again. So there's a little orientation of where we're going to be going this morning, up to the mountain, and then, yes, hopefully, back down to earth. So he's told them that the kingdom calls for sacrifice. And his, but the kingdom is real. The kingdom is worth sacrifice because the kingdom is real. And he says, some of you are going to see it. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here. And we don't know if he's saying this to the twelve. We don't know if he's saying this to the twelve and others who are around. And he says, some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And Matthew, Mark and Luke all put that statement of Jesus right before, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. And this, this uh, description of the Mount of Transfiguration. And so the easy conclusion, first of all, is what Jesus is talking about, that some of them would see the kingdom come in power, is that they would see the glory of the king. They would see Jesus transformed before their eyes. They would see his future glory already even though he has not yet suffered and died first. They get a glimpse of the future that will strengthen them in the present. But there's probably even more to it than that. It also could refer to him being raised from the dead in power. That his kingdom is, is um, the power of his kingdom is seen in his resurrection and for our lives. We live in the power of his resurrection as well. There could be more than that. It could be that he's actually referring to when the kingdom breaks out over the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born, and there is this redeemed community planted on the earth, those who believe in Jesus as their Savior, who are indwelt themselves by the Spirit of the living God. And they experience the actual Holy Spirit power of the kingdom in daily life. And it's by his empowering that they are able to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. We're not able to do that in our own means, in our own strength. If we are going to follow him in a kingdom life, that's a life that looks like sacrifice, denial of self for others, that's not inherent to our self-centered nature. That's different. That's other. And it comes from beyond us. It comes from the life of Christ lived in us by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see some of that when he invites them up this mountain. I've, I titled this section, Come Climb a Better Mountain. Because there's a contrast here. There's a mountain that looms large in Israel's history. And that's Mount Sinai. 
And Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He only takes Joshua with him. And a cloud descends on that mountain. And they hear from God. And Moses is given the very words of God to bring to the people. And the people are terrified. And yet this is where a covenant is established with them as his people. And this mountain is supposed to compare to that. There are all these parallels that are going to emerge out of, this, out, of, out of these few short verses. But this is a better mountain. And there's something for us to learn there. But let me, let me continue reading from verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, so that no one on earth, as no one on earth could bleach them or launder them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. It's the voice of God. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, no Moses, no Elijah, but Jesus only. I mentioned there's some parallels there. Starting with the six days, Moses was on Mount Sinai for six days, and here in six days they go up the mountain. Moses only took Joshua. The rest of the people stayed behind. God instructed it so. Jesus only takes three of his 12 disciples and none of the rest of the crowds. They, they go up what's said to be a very high mountain. Same language is used concerning Sinai. And there, Jesus' clothes become radiant, and he shines in a future kingdom glory. He's changed before them. Even like Moses was changed in the presence of, his, of, his, of the Lord, of the Lord's glory, so that his face shone, and he wore a veil to cover that. There's this mention of the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle. Well, it was out of Mount Sinai and the covenant that is made there that a tabernacle is made. It's a tabernacle. It's a dwelling place. It's where God would dwell with his people on earth. And he dwells within their midst in that tabernacle that he gives Moses instructions to make. And so Peter says, hey, we should build three tabernacles. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah as if they're all equals and they are not. And that's the time when... Maybe happens a lot after Peter says something. The Lord says, okay, we've got to sort this out. And the glory of God descends upon the mountain. This cloud descends upon the mountain. Out of the cloud, a voice, just like with Moses on Mount Sinai. And there it's, no, 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 there will not be three tabernacles here. There will only be one. And there's no tabernacle for Peter to build because the tabernacle has already been built. As John says in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus is the presence of God tabernacling, dwelling among humanity. He has come. There's nothing, to, there's nothing for us to build. God has built it. God has prepared for his son a body that he would lay down for us. So there is contrast here between Moses and Jesus, between Mount Sinai and between this mountain of transfiguration, this mountain of transformation, this mountain of glorious change. 
But it doesn't come by Moses. It comes by Jesus. Even that last word, this is my son, listen to him. We heard that before from Moses in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses tells Israel, the Lord your God will send, for, send to you a prophet like unto me from your own brethren, and, from, and to him you must listen. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. No longer Moses. Listen to Jesus. The point is not the law and the prophets and Jesus, the New Testament, all stand on an equal footing. The point is that the law and the prophets are given to, point to, and to reveal that we would recognize God's Son when he comes. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. Long ago, in many ways and in many different times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including Moses, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, who is the exact representation of his glory. The Son has come. So we climb a better mountain. We, we, we live in his kingdom by, by virtue of this better mountain, which is by the Son rather than by Moses. And there's something about the Christian life there. That we, we don't live God's new covenant kingdom life. We don't live that new covenant life by keeping old covenant law. We will not live out this deny yourself, take up your cross and, and, and following Jesus by following a list of things that I will do and things that I will not do. We will not follow Jesus by keeping Moses' law or even your own set of local rules. No, we will live it by the life of God himself in us, by the power of his indwelling spirit. The next section from verse 14 points out what the disciples can't do, but what only God can do through us. Look at verse 14. Just like Moses and Joshua, when they came down the mountain, what did they find? They found chaos and unbelief and the enemy running rampant among God's people. And that's what, the, that's what Jesus and the, and, the, and the disciples find here in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran to him and greeted him. It's a good choice. And he asked them. So the crowd and the scribes, they seem to be arguing with the disciples. They're challenging them. What's been going on? What's caused this ruckus? And somebody then from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. Well, you weren't here, so to your disciples. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. This is obvious demonic possession here. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. They were not able. They couldn't do it. And so the father goes on. The father continues. Well, first Jesus says, well, bring him to me. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Bring me the lad. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirits when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Now, now pause for a minute here. Isn't that a strange next question? Is that what you were expecting? I mean, here, right before Jesus, there is... Hang on a minute. I'm going to trip over that. There we go. 
There's caution tape, but it was on the wrong side. Right, right, right front and center for everybody to see, right at Jesus' feet practically, is this, this, this young man, and he falls down, and he's foaming at the mouth, and he's writhing, and he's rigid, and it's just an awful, obvious scene. And Jesus is carrying on. How, how long has this been happening? Jesus continues to, to build that rapport and to draw in the Father. He is not shocked or scandalized at what he sees. Have you had the occasion where you've had the chance to come near to somebody in the midst of their mess? And that's what sin does. Sin causes, causes a messy brokenness among us and in our lives. And yet it should not surprise us when it is so. Any more that it should surprise us to see an actual manifestation of demonic oppression that should not surprise us. These are things that occur in the world. I remember the first time I saw something just obvious out in the open when we were on a trip to India. And, and it, it did take me back. But, but again, there's the reminder. Uh, the evil one is working in the lives of those who do not believe. And he continues to tempt and to try those among us who are believers. So that when we see the mess and we see the brokenness, we shouldn't be scandalized from it and draw back by it and not want to be polluted by that. No, we draw near. We're not shocked by that. We're not shocked about human fallenness. It's exactly what God's Word tells us. And he tells us to bring grace and mercy in time of need, just as he would into those circumstances and situations where we find them. I was privileged just a couple of days ago to be among a group of people that, that were helping somebody walk through a mess, and yet they did it with grace and care. And there's a call to responsibility in there. There's a call to make better choices. We're going to talk about that. But that call to make better choices, that call to begin to walk through this, to walk in light together, was made out of grace and mercy to the person in the midst of the mess. That's a wonderful thing to see, and I'm, 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 I'm privileged to be a part of a church that that's how this body functions and cares for one another. So we're told we come climb a better mountain because we cannot do this on our own. The father returns the focus from the religious debate of the scribes, and the scribes are challenging. The scribes are telling the disciples, well, you can't do this. Who are you? Who authorized you to do this? You're doing it wrong. Whatever it is that they're telling it, whatever it is the voices tell you that keep you out of giving yourself for others, who are you? You're not qualified. You're, you're probably doing it wrong, according to the experts. The father pushes that aside, and he says, if, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. Asking the Lord of the universe, the creator of everything, if he can do anything? And so Jesus turns those words right back. And we're not sure what he's saying here. He says, if you can. Is he saying, if you can? What do you mean asking me if I can? Or is he saying, if you can? Well, Father already knows. The Father can't help him. Well, some of our earliest Greek manuscripts on this passage, scribes have added a word. They've added, if you can believe. Because that's how, that's how the early church understood Jesus' words. Jesus is not saying, oh, you say, if I can. Of course I can. No, Jesus, Jesus is turning it back on him. There's no question about what Jesus can do. The issue for his healing, the issue for the young man's deliverance is if you can believe. 
And that's what Jesus goes on to say. And our translations lose that can in the next line, but it is there. So I'm going to rephrase it like this. For everything can be for someone who believes. The issue is not what Jesus can do. The the issue is, can you believe? Because everything everything can be for the one who believes. That's what Jesus is telling him. It's a matter of faith here. Starting out the foundation of deliverance and rescue that leads to new life in his kingdom, freed from oppression and bondage, is faith believing in him. Can you believe? And I love the man's response because it's my response all the time. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Now, some of you, your faith is full and perfect, and you don't need that. I'm happy for you. I do. I do. I do not yet believe. I don't, I don't see what I one day will see, and I do not yet believe what I one day will fully grasp. Lord, I do believe. I believe what, what, what I know and what you've showed me so far. Lord, I want to I wanna, I wanna know more and believe more. I want to trust you more than I do. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Jesus, with authority, cast out, cast out the demon. The apostles are surprised, or, or, or rather the disciples here, they're surprised. How come we couldn't do it? Because he had given them authority to cast out demons, and they'd done that before, and they'd celebrated what God had done through them, and, and yet this time they could not, and Jesus' answer to them is very curious. He says, no, no, this kind can only come out by prayer, very intentional prayer. Some, some versions of the story even say by prayer and fasting. This kind can only come out by very intentional prayer, asking God to do what you cannot do. The disciples said, okay, okay, we'll remember that. You remember that. That's, that's important. Fasting and prayer. For all, asking God to do for you and through you what only he can do. But I think sometime along the way, the disciples probably said, hey, wait a minute. They rehearsed the story again. He told us that that kind can only be driven out by fasting and prayer. And yet, as you read the story, it doesn't say that Jesus prayed. It says that Jesus commanded How come if they can only be driven out by prayer for us, for the disciples, how is it that Jesus does not pray, he just does? It says something about who he is. He is the one that we would ask to do it for us. He is the one that we would ask to do it through us. He is God incarnate, tabernacling among us carrying that idea from the mountain visitation. So he can do through us what we can't do on our own. Now establishing that, that we climb a better mountain, that we will not live this kingdom life in this present, we will not live that by by laws and rules, we will not live that kingdom life by our own ability, but by the power of God through us. And from that day of Pentecost, when they saw the kingdom come come in an initial fullness, that we will live his life by his indwelling Holy Spirit. Now that, if I'm going to talk about living a kingdom life, there's, there's an easy place to get confused again because there's a lot of confusion about what does that mean? What does it mean for, to, be, to be living in God's kingdom? Well, it's best understood in the sense of a now and not yet. You see, we, we are already, as Paul describes, we are already in his kingdom in the sense that, 
as Paul writes in Colossians 1, that we have been transferred from the power of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. Okay? Paul writes to the Romans that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace in the Holy Spirit. That the kingdom of God is already seen in what the church does and who God is making his church to be. That we already see the kingdom in changed lives. And yet, Paul says, the kingdom is not yet. We are not yet experiencing the fullness of the kingdom, which Paul says we will inherit, but flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We're not there yet. In fact, one of the last things Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4 to Timothy, he says, the Lord will rescue us from every evil deed and will bring us into his heavenly kingdom. Don't you long for that? You long for that day when the full experience of of God's kingdom will be, and yet it's not yet. But we already live, we already nibble around the edges of God's kingdom by His Spirit living in us. So it's, in a sense, it's been inaugurated at Pentecost, and the life of God lived in His church, and yet we do not yet see the fullness of it. The The kingdom of God is now but not yet. Those two, now and not yet, are wonderfully expressed in the tenses of verbs. Jesus says every word, Jesus says every little bit of every word, every jot and tittle will not pass away until all these things be confirmed. Here's a place where grammar works for you. You teachers that that wish the kids could understand that grammar is important, here you go. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, the redeemed falling down in worship, proclaiming to God, and you have made them the redeemed. You have made them, past tense, a kingdom and priests to our God. Did you catch it? You have made them a kingdom. They are, have been made already a kingdom in the past tense. And they will be future. They will reign upon the earth. The kingdom is now. And it is not yet. We already live towards something we don't yet fully see. That's the thing. It's sacrificing now. It's giving ourselves now for what God has said will be. And we only do that because we believe him. This new kingdom life is a life lived by faith in him who loved us and gave himself for us. And just as he denied himself and laid down his life for us that we who believe in him could have his new life, so also we believe him and we will then lay down our life for a future that we do not yet see. That is the essence of the Christian life. In that sense, it's like retirement. In that sense, it's like a building campaign that we will do. We will sacrifice for the sake of what we don't yet see because God will do it. And as the old hymn says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So then, how do we live this kingdom life? How do we live this new life in his kingdom? That's where I really wanted to focus my time today. So I've, I've, I've left off some things in the chapter because I really want to focus on that. So turn over now to verse 30 of Mark chapter 9. In verse 30. As they're, as they're going on from there, okay, they came back from the mountain. They met the crowds again, probably around Caesarea Philippi. And then now they're, they're traveling. They're on their way back from further up north there, back down to the Sea of Galilee, back down to Capernaum. In verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, 
He didn't want to gather a crowd. He was not now holding evangelistic campaigns because he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. The kingdom life is going to come through death. Kingdom life comes to us through his death for us. That's what he wants them to get. That's what he wants to understand. That's more important to him than gathering more crowds to hear him teach is that his disciples will get this, that you and I will get this, that his kingdom life in us only comes by his death for us. And They didn't understand that yet, and yet they didn't ask. I would venture in a group this size Surely there are people here who have heard that. Maybe you've heard that before. That, that new life for you, a changed life, a transformed life, it comes because of Jesus dying for you, the Son of God actually dying in your place, but you do not understand how that works. You don't get that. How is it that his death can count for me? How is it that his death can remove our guilt, and yet you don't ask? I remember when I was teaching electronics, I would, I would urge, my, urge the students in the class, I said, please, you got a question, ask it. Don't think it's a dumb question. Don't think everybody else in the room understands. I guarantee you, I've seen their test scores. They're no brighter than you. If you don't understand it, chances are they don't understand it either, but they're all afraid to ask. So ask. And I would urge you this morning, maybe you know somebody here, you came with somebody, you've been friends a long time with somebody here. Ask them, ask one of us, ask any of us. But don't keep continuing going on from here today not knowing how is it that Jesus' death in my place changes everything for me with God. That is central. And all the rest of this life is built on that, that life comes through death. And how it's lived out. Look at verse 33. Some very practical ways in how it's lived out. Now, Jesus is teaching that. What, is, what are his disciples focused on? Look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, well, what were you discussing on the way? He's trying to tell them some things. He's stirring conversation along the way. But they're getting caught up among themselves. And what are they talking about? Well, they kept silent, for on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. In this band of 12 disciples plus one, is there any question who is the greatest here? There's no question. It is Jesus. Yet, aside from Jesus, on our own, which of us is going to be in charge of all the others? Which of us are the greatest? That's the focus. Now, we smile at the disciples and shake our heads and, my, how can they be so slow? Don't we do the same thing? Don't you easily, even when it's along the lines of, of a crucified life, of a life of serving, don't you easily compare yourself to others? How am I doing compared to whoever? We easily do the same thing as if comparing ourselves with one another will make us feel better about ourselves, and maybe it will, but our eyes are in the wrong place. They should be on him. He is the greatest, and he is the only, and he is our life, and he's showing in the exact opposite. The one, who, who, the, the one who is first will be the one who is last, the one who serves, the one who becomes the least of all is the one who's going to be the greatest. To die, to live, is to be the first to serve, to lead by serving, to dive to the bottom of the pile. And he fleshes that out all the more. Everybody favors powerful people, influential people, important people. Jesus takes a child, 
Verse 3 says, he took a child and put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms. And he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Caring for the least of these. How do you step into that? Oh, did I mention VBC is this week? And if we have as many kids as are expected, we could use more help and we'll plug you in wherever that might fit. So there's still opportunity for that. I know the office staff is going to be probably working overtime doing additional background checks to work with kids by people who come in and join us. I'm willing to help. And that'll be wonderful. But to give of ourselves for some, it's just kids. That's God's future. He made them. He loves them. He dies for them. To die to live is to play nice with brothers, to play nice with others outside our own circles. The disciples see other people doing things. Hey, they're casting out demons. You know, we, we, we weren't even able to over here, but they're doing it. What about them? They're not with us. And Jesus says, if they're not against us, they're for us. If they're doing this in my name, then bless them. Play nice with brothers. I'm going to move on to that because I think this one's even more important for us. From verse 42 onward, to live to, to die to live is to choose the best. We are faced with choices, and this one is so big that Jesus heightens it. He raises it up with a hyperbolic metaphor, hyperbole in a metaphor. He takes a metaphor, an image. If, you're, if your hand is getting in your way, cut it off. If your foot is getting in your way, cut it off. If your eye is looking at things that are holding you back, pull it out. Better to enter the kingdom of God with one less hand or one less foot or one less eye than to go have two eyes in hell or two, two arms in hell or two feet and, and, and yet be lost or your life ruined. What is he saying? Certainly Jesus is not giving his disciples instructions to start amputations. There's not a new amputation ministry in the church. That is not the point. In fact, the law forbid to mutilate one's body. The law forbid mutilation. So that's not what Jesus is saying. He, he never goes contrary to what God has already said. But rather he's using hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make the point. Do whatever it takes. Take whatever drastic action is needed to remove from your life those things are in the way that will keep you from following Jesus. And I love this bit here about hands and feet and eyes because of what it suggests to us. First of all, what you do. There are things that you do that get in the way of your following Jesus. If, if your foot gets, if your hands offend you, if your hand is in the way of your following Jesus, he says, cut it off, cut it out, remove that distraction. And it may be something obviously sinful that you know hinders your fellowship with God. It might be something not so obvious. It might even be something relatively harmless. I know a young man who was very good at what I'll call golf. Actually, it was something else. So don't think about somebody you know who's good at golf. But it's the same kind of thing. He was very good at golf, and he loved to golf. And he got, he, he got recognition from others because of how good he was when he golfed. And so he golfed a lot. In fact, he golfed too much. He golfed when he was supposed to do other things. He would dodge work to golf. He would dodge his college studies in order to go golfing. Because golfing filled his immediate tank with recognition from others and made him feel good about himself because of how well he did, but... It did nothing for the future. 
and how God was preparing him, building him to use him. It was getting, in fact, in the way of all that to the point that he would tell lies to his employers and his parents about where he was and what he was doing because he was playing golf instead. Now, he said golf's a pretty harmless thing. But nothing is harmless when it gets in the way of you following Jesus. So if there's something that you do that is in the way, it's time to make some choices. How about your foot? Where you go? Places that you go could get in the way. For instance, somebody who has struggled with alcoholism has no business going to a wine tasting. Fair enough? Somebody who has struggled with pornography has no business going to an art museum that's going to have paintings that reveal the human body because that's going to trigger things for them that it might not for somebody else. There are places that you legitimately should not go, not because they're wrong places to go, but they're places you go that get in your way. For some, it might be sports. It's what does it take me from to go there? That's the point. Finally, how about if your eye offends you, pluck it out. I think this is the, a big issue in our culture. Things that we see. It might be on the computer screen. It might be on your phone. It might be places you go on the internet and what you see there. It might be movies that you watch. If your eye offends you, take drastic action. Do whatever it takes to remove that offense, that, uh, that, that distraction, that which takes you away from, that which gets in the way of your relationship with God and your life with Him. Take drastic action. I don't know if, if, if on, your, on your smartphone or your computer, I don't know if for you it's a pornography site Or maybe it's Amazon.com. But whatever you put before your eyes that you desire and long for, and if I had that, that would satisfy me. That would fulfill me. And the pleasure of having that fills you and overwhelms you. When our desires will not be met except in God our Savior. Don't let anything Don't let anything get in the way of that. Our sacrifice to be pleased to offer. There's some fire and salt words at the end of the chapter, and I'm just not going to take the time to try to unpack all that. But it's referring to the the, the burnt offering was fully consumed by fire, and every offering was salted. So salt and fire refers to a sacrificial offering and our sacrifice of worship. These are not rules to obey. This is not a list to follow like Moses and his mountain. This is our privilege in new life, in kingdom life, our privilege to deny ourselves anything else that would get in the way of our following Jesus by giving ourselves for others. How do I know I'm walking with him? How are you giving yourself away for others? Because that's what his walk looked like. Now, This seems like that's not so easy for us to do. We have not seen what those disciples saw. We were not with them, as Peter says, on that holy mountain. We have not yet seen his coming glory like those three did. 
But we have the spirit of the living God within us. The kingdom of God has broke upon the church from Pentecost forward. The living God dwells within us so that when I said, if there's something you put before your eyes that gets in the way of your spiritual life, you knew what I was talking about. You know what that thing is that's before your eyes or that's what you do. You know what it is. Why? Because the Spirit of God speaks to your spirit and tells you, you have something far better than the disciples on the mountain have seen. They saw a fleeting, temporary glimpse of glory. You have the presence of God dwelling within in fellowship with your spirit, to walk with you in his life. The Spirit of God speaks to us directly by his Spirit from God's Word that we see more clearly than they saw on the mountain. To borrow Peter's words, we have the prophetic word made all the more sure. And so, we will walk with him. We will do whatever it takes. We will remove whatever's in the way. We will make a decision. There's something today that I would encourage you to say to somebody. For me, I need to make a change. Have somebody that you'll be accountable into that. Maybe it's someone in your small group. Maybe it's somebody in your discipleship group. Somebody close to you that you trust. But voice that to somebody. This is what can get in the way for me. And I need to take action. Would you pray for me as I ask God's help to deny myself and follow him? Let's pray. Father, I do pray for your help, for your grace. Lord, we would pray, let indeed your kingdom come. Let your will be done here among us in our lives. Father, we long for the return of your kingdom in glory and power. But, Father, right now we we need to see it in humility and in sacrifice. Lord, by your Spirit, make clear, Lord, what would you have me to do? And, Lord, by your Spirit, give me then the courage and the ableness, the ability to do it. Because it's not in me. I don't have it myself. But, Lord, we would... Confess this morning, we want to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.